Hebrews 11, this morning, 17 to 22. I'd like to begin reading at verse 8 as we open the section last Lord's Day morning. Hebrews 11 and verse 8. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tents or tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting or concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him, in a figure. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both, his, both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Father, this morning we return to the thought of how indeed the patriarchs patiently waited according to promise. Indeed, they did stand upon the promises of God in a fashion similar to what we have just sung as a congregation this Lord's Day morning. And now we pray that you would help us as we pick up on the text 
and pick up on the thought to understand the unique blessedness of a faith that pleases you, of a faith that when exercised causes that you would not be ashamed to call us your children. Help us then to engage in such a faith even in this day. For we do pray these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. The sweet psalmist of Israel saying, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. The living and enduring faith illustrated by the Old Testament patriarchs continues to be our focus in this hour as we build upon the truths previously studied concerning them. Four generations are named. Four generations of Abraham's family lived and died waiting, waiting upon the promises of God to be fulfilled, exactly as verse 13 declares it. Such waiting could well be thought foolish if it wasn't for the fact that they weren't just waiting. They were waiting on the Lord. We are not talking about the virtues of waiting today. We are talking about the wisdom and the benefit of believing God and waiting for the fulfillment of his promise. The testimony of the patriarchs, as recorded, allows us to see the relationship between a person's faith, the promises of God, and God's time. Imagine in your mind a triangle. And on that triangle with three tips, you have three things to consider uh, in testimony in this text. The first thing you have is the reality of God's promise. God has said something. He said something to Abraham. And to that which God had said or promised Abraham, Abraham exercised faith. Second tip of the triangle is faith. And then Abraham exercised that faith during the days of his life. And then Abraham exercised that faith right up until the time in which he died. And that interjects, as it were, the third factor in this triangle of thoughtful uh, Christian life embraced. And that has to do with time. Promise, faith, and time. Promise, faith, and time. God has made promises to which we should exercise our faith during the days of our life. And if we come to the end of our days of life, we ought to exercise that faith in the hour of death. Promises in faith, and then in relationship to time. Time in life, and time when life is indeed over. True faith in God during one's lifetime is, according to the additional words of study this morning, tested. By God. If you know something of God's promise and you've exercised faith in that promise, and now you look to the clock, to the days of life, the hours of life, the seasons of life, for the fulfillment of those promises, 
That's a good thing. But understand this, that the times of fulfillment are all in the hands of God and during the time in which our faith waits. We learn today of the scriptures that God usually tests our faith as he did Abraham. And then the second thing related to time uh, that we uh, see here dramatically is that true faith in God continues in evidence even in the face of physical death. True, two things, true faith in God during one's lifetime is tested by God. Secondly, true faith in God continues in evidence even in the face of physical death. Those two things will be proven by the four named generations under the banner of the patriarchs as we pick up the testimony of those generations' enduring faith as seen in the Old Testament scriptures. We discover and are reminded that Abraham's faith was tested as he waited upon God's promise, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his monogene, his only begotten son. If we were to flip just a few pages forward in our scriptures, we could read in James who tells us that the trying of our faith works unto our strengthening and endurance. James 1.3. The trying of a believer's faith in the days of earthly sojourn is normal. The trying of our faith. Promises of God are to be met with faith. And when we possess faith in the promises of God's word, as actually stated, then comes in the time factor. And as the time factor continues to tick along, then we can expect that our faith in God's promise will be tested. That is the first piece of pertinent information that we are given by way of example here concerning Abraham. James concurring and telling us in the, in the book of James that that is normative for the people of God. Tested faith endures better than untested faith. And for this reason, God did and God does administer the test of faith. We should all know by now that waiting on God does not mean sit idly by and waste the time of your life as God has assigned it to you. No, waiting on God means that God is pleased by active waiting, by an waiting that is, is banked upon or predicated upon life that draws upon its perspective from the reality of God's promise. What exactly does God want us to do while, in fact, we wait for the time of his promises to be fulfilled? How do we wait upon 
the Lord actively? That's the question that we bring to this second section of testimony relative to the patriarchs. And the first thing that we see is that active waiting means the formulating of your perspective and logic for living upon the character and the word of God as did Abraham. Again, verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. The story of Abraham and his son Isaac on Mount Moriah is familiar to most of us. God tested Abraham's faith by asking him to sacrifice the promised son that had been supernaturally conceived in the old age of that couple, Abraham and Sarah, conceived, delivered by the power of God. In other words, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his special son after God himself had deemed that boy Abraham's special son. Abraham trusted God and obeyed his command, even though it humanly contradicted all good sense and morality. We are given insight into Abraham's thinking as he moved to obey God. The scripture not only tells us of Abraham's faith back in the book of Genesis, but the Bible specifically describes for us Abraham's thinking. It's as if in Hebrews that God shows you a picture of Abraham on Mount Moriah uh, about ready to sacrifice his adult son, uh, Isaac, and as if there's one of those thought bubbles, boop, that pops up above Abraham's head. And at verse 18 uh, and 19, you and I get to uh, enter into Abraham's thoughts. And it's really quite amazing when God allows you to think what other people think. When God allows you to see what people were thinking. And so after mentioning the only begotten son, and we'll come back to that in a moment, of whom verse 18 says, it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. God said to Abraham a number of things, but one of the specific things that God said to Abraham was, Isaac is the seed that I promised you. He is the fulfillment of that particular promise in your generation uh, that will move forward to be sure. But he is the guy. Isaac is the guy. Isaac is the one. And of course, Abraham didn't have any problem believing that because after all, he was an old man and and worse than being an old man, Sarah was an old woman uh, when she uh, was pregnant with that baby. And uh, Abraham knew, knew that it was a long, long, long time past uh, that she should bear a child, and yet she bore a child in the will of God. And uh, God said to Abraham, he's that special son. He's that special son of promise. Uh, and he is the seed of which I have promised you particularly. Verse 19, accounting. Accounting, that's the key word of this particular section of the Word of God here. The key word is concluding or accounting. 
It comes to us from the Greek word logizomai, from which we get the English word logic. Abraham's thought processes. Abraham's logic unto obedience went in a particular way. And the thing that strikes me is, is that what he thought was right, but wrong. He actually had the wrong thought. It didn't go down the way that he thought. And yet his thought was right. Intrigued? Here we go. Abraham's logic unto obedience was he thought to obey God because of what he knew for sure of God's promise. Well, that's good. That's good that he was confident and sure in God's promise. He knew what God had promised him. He knew who, verse 18, was the seed of that promise. He knew that Isaac was the only son of his kind. Verse 17, the only son of his kind, the only begotten son, the monogene. Those words literally mean one of a kind. Now, I have said many times to many people, you are one of a kind. And there is a sense in which certainly any human being is special. But we're not talking about normal speciality when God says to Abraham, Isaac is your fulfillment of seed promise. The term monogene is used, as many of you know, in the New Testament to speak of the God-man. Jesus Christ is monogene. Jesus Christ is the only begotten of God the Father. He is the only son of his kind. There is no other son of his kind but him. Here the term reminds us that Abraham knew that Isaac was the unique son of God's promise. Abraham obviously had other sons by Hagar. Abraham had sons by Keturah. But Isaac was that special born son of the long dead womb of Sarah. Abraham knew Isaac was the son attached to God's blessing and God's promise. No doubt about that whatsoever. So here is Abraham's concluding in real time during the earthly sojourn in which he lived, accounting that God was able to raise him up. Abraham calculated that God would not allow his word to fail, and Abraham then took into consideration, as verse 19 declares, uh, that God was a God of almighty power. When he put together the specific elements of God's promise and the attribute of God's omnipotent power, pom promise and power coming together in the mind of Abraham, 
he calculates, he concludes that even Isaac's death could not be a permanent deterrent to God's stated will. So Abraham, calculating correctly upon the promise of God, Abraham, calculating correctly upon the power of God, concludes that he's going to kill the boy and God's going to raise him up. There's going to be a resurrection from the dead. Is that what happened? No. And we'll get to that in a moment. And that's why I say that Abraham was right as the promise and right as the power, but wrong as to the event. He didn't exactly have it clear in his mind as to how it would be that God would fulfill his promises. One of the things that is most challenging to my personal life and ministry and to yours is the reminder that you and I are to latch on to the promises of God, to latch on to the power of God, and we are to let God be God as to how it comes down the pike in time. God does not need our help. God needing our help produced Ishmael. God not needing anybody's help produced Isaac. You don't want a life of Ishmael. You want a life of Isaac. Grab a hold of the promise. Grab a hold of God's power. And let God be God as to how it actually happens in real time as God has appointed it. Promise, faith, and time. Promise, faith, and time. Promise, faith, and time. And time is where the rub comes in my soul because sometimes it feels to me like too little, too late. Promise, faith, time. Let God be God as to the time, the day of fulfillment. Let God be God as to the way of fulfillment. Let God be God as to the day of fulfillment. Let God be God as to the way of fulfillment. When you have a promise from God and you exercise faith in God and you struggle with the time, you struggle with the time, uh, let God have the day. Let God have his way. And instead of you producing within yourself an angst or a worry uh, as to how you think it's going to come down the pike, uh, you will be able to stand back and watch God be God. And that's exactly what happened uh, in the case of, of Abraham. Uh, you and I know that once Abraham's intention uh, was fully demonstrated as to his obedience, that God said, in essence, it is enough. And as a result of that, verse 19, uh, uh, the last part says, from whence also he received him in a figure. In a figure of what? In a figure of death. The word figure is parabole. It yields the English word 
parable. Abraham passed God's test by focusing his mind on God's actual promise and on God's unlimited power. And that is exactly how we must wait upon the Lord. Isaac did not actually die in that moment as Abraham might have thought he would. But God was pleased to assign, to account to Abraham, tested faith passed in that moment of time and account to him tested faith passed without Isaac actually dying. Of course, Isaac was born of death to begin with. He came from the dead womb of his mother. He was the only child of his mother. It's a marvelous depiction. It's a phenomenal thing to think upon as to how God utilizes and accepted the figurative of the literal thing that Abraham was willing to trust God to complete. Nonetheless, nonetheless, perspective. Built upon the promise of God, built upon faith in God, and trusting God for the time, the day of the test, and the way of the test. The second thing that I call your attention to is, as it relates to this idea of actively waiting, has to do with passing the truth of God to the next generation and preparing uh, that generation to receive it, as did Isaac and Jacob, beginning at verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph are brought front and center, starting with verse 20, to make emphasis upon the way that they face death. The way that they face death. Trust God for the days of your life and the ways of your life. Trust God for the day of your death and the way of your death. Trust God for the day of your life and the day of, your, uh, of, 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 uh, of that promise being fulfilled. And trust God for the day of your death and the way of your death. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph are brought front and center because of the emphasis upon how they faced death. While the life and sojourn of Joseph is one of the most stellar in all of the scripture, Isaac, and much about Jacob's pilgrimage, was rife with carnality. Yet we can say that each man, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, had a confirming encounter with the one true God of heaven and earth, and each man died rightly with specific evidence of faith in God. Before Isaac died, and in preparation for dying, he blessed his sons according to God's promise first made to Abraham. He did not do it easily. He did not do it happily at the first, in humility or honor for God. He did not do it without significant family conflict and drama. But Isaac did, 
blessed Jacob as his second son and God's firstborn. And he did bless Esau in the way of God's pleasure, although not as Esau desired. Isaac, in his blessing, especially of Jacob, evidences his faith in God's promise. He passed the truth of God to the next generation. Primarily in the life of Jacob. And yet, interestingly, the scripture itself makes point of emphasis in verse 20 to the faith of Isaac, exercised in the blessing of Jacob and Esau, concerning things to come, concerning those certain things to come as a result of God's promise and God's power. That is how the testimony of dying faith rested in the person of Isaac. In that next generation, Jacob, and uh, uh, you almost have to laugh when you read verse 21, by faith Jacob, when he was a dying, that sounds southern, doesn't it? When he was a dying, maybe Irish, after yesterday, or Friday being St. Pat, uh, uh, Patrick's Day, as he was a dying, blessed both his sons Joseph and worship leaning upon his staff. Uh, uh, verse 21 forecast the will of God's purpose and plan as was defined uh, by Jacob uh, before he died uh, for each of his 12 sons. And the primary emphasis of that prophecy would be, of course, recorded in Genesis chapter 49. Prophetically, we most usually fix our attention on what Jacob had to say to Judah and the promises of rulership and redemption that we know culminate in Jesus the Messiah. But here, in Hebrews 11, the Holy Spirit references when Jacob came to bless his son Joseph by extending that blessing upon the next generations in his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. It says in verse 20, by faith Abraham, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph. Jacob laid his hands on his two grandsons according to God's will and blessing as promised. Now, if you uh, recall something of that uh, Old Testament account in Genesis, you know that Jacob had something of a deja vu moment when blessing those boys as the younger of Joseph's two sons received what we might have expected to fall on the older. And it is very, very helpful, theologically speaking, when we try to work with and define the New Testament term firstborn because of the fact is that usually we would think that firstborn would mean born first but that is not what it means and of course Jacob himself and his own story uh, is indeed a story 
of where the first one born, Esau, was not the firstborn in the plan of God, Jacob. And of course, in the convoluted sense of, of Jacob and Esau's carnality, under a rather carnal dad named Isaac, uh, those two boys, chips off the old block of their dad, uh, those two boys uh, strove uh, to get all they could get uh, by way of the aspect of family inheritance. And it was always the will of God in regards to the case of Esau and Jacob. It was always the will of God not to give firstborn status to the one born first, Esau, but to give firstborn status uh, to the one born second called Jacob. And so, in essence, if you look at it, uh, uh, what God's will was in the life of Isaac was that the promise of firstborn would do this. The problem is, is that Jacob and Esau strove, and uh, Jacob and his mother strove, and caused all kinds of conflict to make this happen. And if they would have just rested in the Lord, God would have taken care of that. And then kind of strangely, here's Jacob, and he's the old man, that worked like a dog to get the blessing of the firstborn when he was not the first one born. And here's Jacob now standing before the sons of Joseph, and Joseph presents to him his first and second sons. And when Jacob goes to blend, uh, bless them, God takes jo Jacob's arms as if having a stroke-like spasm. And he goes, Whoosh! And Joseph, bless his pee-picking heart, says, Dad! God's not doing it the way we thought! And Jacob, bless his now well-informed heart, says, Son, let God have his day. Let God have his way. Oh, son, let God have his day. Let God have his way. Ephraim and Manasseh. <laughs> it's kind of a deja vu moment for the old man Jacob. But the point here is that Jacob, even while finding it hard to stand up physically, Scripture says, leaning upon his stick, leaning upon his staff. You know what that's like. Some of you know it firsthand. Leaning upon your stick, leaning upon your staff, past the truth of God to the next generation deliberately. Can't help this morning as I look out on the congregation to know those that have young children in their home. Being in the face of at least one man this morning who was just added to his quiver. Another prophet, prophetically named son. I would remind all the parents in the room that your first and primary ministry before God is with your own family. If God uses you to reach many others, 
but you fail to pass the truth of God to the next generation, you've really failed. Oh, may God help us all to be faithful with those that he not only has given to us, but put right within our own homes. We pray for the parents of this church that they would be faithful to the truth in the next generation. Jacob, bless his pea-picking heart, died in faith. He died waiting upon the promise and told his grandsons, God promised something, you may well be alive when it comes to fruition. Let God have his day. Let God have his way. Thirdly, then, I say to you that active waiting involves preparing your mind to face physical death and expressing your will according to God's promise, as did Jacob and Joseph. There's something else in verse 21 that is very interesting to me, and that is the word worshiped. By faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph, passed it on to the next generation, and worshipped. In that moment of time, Jacob had a humble heart. In that moment of time, Jacob had a hopeful heart. He was humble and hopeful as he came to the end of his earthly life. And he postured himself in worship of God. He indeed had a heart that said, God, I'm giving you the day. And God, I'm giving you your way. God, you have promised the day. God, you control the way. And as to the day and the way, oh God, let it be thine. That's worshiping God. When you say, God, the day is yours. When you say, God, the way is yours. When you submit to the Lord in the fullness of his greatness, well, then you are truly worshiping God. Joseph's dying faith is evident in his last will and testament. And I'm sure you've read it before. And if not, you can read it this afternoon in Genesis 50, 24 to 26. But Joseph prepared for death by calling attention to God's promise to the Jewish people with absolute confidence of future fulfillment, ending his noteworthy Egyptian career. He spoke of the exodus years before Moses was even born. And Joseph left instructions for his bones to be removed by the Israelites when leaving Egypt so that they could be buried in the land of promise because Joseph knew that his eternal claims did not rest in the hidden tunnels of the great Egyptian pyramids, but in the promise of the great God of Israel waiting for what God has actually promised is guaranteed to be worth it. No apparent delay, no activity among the demonic, nor even death itself can prevent the fulfillment of God's promise to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. 
What's the necessity of the hour? Worship. And how would we construe worship based upon this specific testimony? Well, I would construe worship as letting God have his day and letting God have his way. Paul said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Father, may your people be convinced from above. May they be convinced from within by the prompting of thy blessed spirit. And may they be convinced by the testimony of the word of God concerning those deemed faithful, letting you have the day, letting you have your way in the course of life and in the hour of death. May we, your people in this place, exercise ourselves faithfully in that precise and instructive way as seen in thy holy word this morning and continue to allow our hearts and minds and lips to speak of the glories and the honors ever to be associated with our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.